I haven't done it in such a long time. This is a podcast. (laughs) This is the Bad Taste Crimecast. Yes. Yeah. Welcome to the Bad Taste Crimecast. We're back. I'm Janelle. No, you're Janelle. (laughs) Maybe I just wanted to be Janelle. I'm I'm Vicky. And I'm Vicky. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Vicky. I'm Janelle. And we are back another week with some more crime-like stuff. Here we are again, another Sunday. I actually had a request to bring the mimosas back. Somebody yeah. said, you guys are way fun on mimosas, so um, here we are again. I'm way brain dead on them. You know. <laughs> I didn't even remember us introducing ourselves the last time. Yeah, that's true. I heard that and laughed a lot. That was... I did too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, we have a very special episode for you yes. guys this week. We have a guest on this week's episode mm-hmm. that we will get to in a little bit. I, you know, I say this every week. But I think this is going to be my favorite. It's going to be a great show. <laughs> this is going to be my favorite episode. Yeah, it's going to be a great show, as per the huge. Yeah, yeah. we're amazing. I don't know. Do we're doing new stuff, like having people on. That's yeah, new. Got to give the people what they want. <laughs> they want not us. Basically. They want new, they want guests. Exciting. Slightly less drunk. <laughs> no. Slightly more no. drunk. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's <laughs> yeah probably. We do have a couple of things to talk about first before we get to that. I guess we'll start with news. Yeah, news sounds good. There were three really big things that happened. Um, it'll be about two weeks when the podcast comes out. So the first that I want to talk about is there was a verdict in the Philando Castile case. I don't. Were you following that at all? A little. Yeah. So I definitely got into it a lot more, I think, right before the verdict came out. But there's a podcast called 74 Seconds that actually was following the trial and kind of does this overview of what happened and followed the trial when the verdict came out. Um, For those that don't know, the shooting of Philando Castile happened in St. Paul, Minnesota by Geronimo Yanez. And Geronimo Yanez is a police officer, pulled him over in a traffic stop. And... He was shot five times. I think the officer yeah. shot seven, and he was shot five times. The video footage is. Pretty... Did you watch it? It just I watched just released that, it. like the actual shooting, and then the video footage in the back of the squad car of the. Was they were wife or dating? I forget. It was his girlfriend, girlfriend and daughter. And their, yeah. yeah, and the child. Yeah, yeah. Which is just there's a part in that where you hear because that would would have been from the his girlfriend's Facebook live video mm-hmm. I believe and there's a part where you just hear his daughter like it's okay mom like I'm here and just trying to like console the mother and it's heartbreaking the child it's told so her that sad. she didn't want her to get shot too yeah and that was the point where I was like I I can't even watch this anymore like yeah. It's too much. It's so, overwhelming. Geronimo Yanez was found not guilty of second-degree manslaughter and was acquitted of two <laughs> counts of intentional discharge of a firearm that endangers safety. And there is, I mean, this is definitely, like, a point of contention out there right now. Um I mean, there are some racial aspects to it. I've actually heard that a lot of gun owners are really upset because... He organizations. Had yeah, he, yeah, he had he had a legal permit to carry. He didn't have a felony record. He was this upstanding member of society and 
he the the interesting thing is the NRA hasn't said anything about it yet, mm-hmm. and a lot of gun owners are really upset because it's like they shouldn't just represent the old white men that own guns. Yeah. They need to represent all gun owners, and he was illegally carrying gun owners. So, mm-hmm. what the police officer should have done was ask him to get out of the car and remove the gun himself. Yeah. That's what you're supposed to do. And there's... He stated he was a gun owner and that he was carrying, and what you're supposed to do is ask them to step out of the vehicle and remove the gun yourself. Well, and some of the the experts that I've heard talk about this have said that even, even as a legally carrying gun owner with a permit, apparently what they teach you in the classes is that you don't necessarily have to tell them that you have a firearm unless they directly ask you. So he didn't even have to say anything about it. And did, and now he's dead, so Mm -hmm. there's that. Um, So that was one of the big, big things that happened in the last um, week, two weeks or so. The second is the Michelle Carter verdict. I don't know if you were following this one. I was was, not following. It was the girl who, um, well, she was found guilty of encouraging her boyfriend's suicide. Mm -hmm. Uh, essentially, if you look at her, messages. she looks like a fucking twelve-year-old. Yeah, she definitely. She's she is young. She's now she's twenty, but yeah. she was. I want to say she was in her teens at the time of the incident. Yeah. Um, but she had sent these text messages to her boyfriend, encouraging him, saying, "You can't back out of it now. It's now or never. When are you going to do it?" And. She was convicted of involuntary manslaughter and was found guilty. So this one is kind of a big deal because... It's surprising. I was very surprised. Well, it's surprising, and this could really be one of those landmark cases that set precedence for cases after after it, because she didn't... I don't want to say she didn't have a direct involvement, but, like, she didn't... She didn't kill him. She didn't pull the trigger. Right. Like... But it was, like, you know, kind of... Yeah, at what point uh, does it stop being that person's responsibility and... Right. And start being someone else's. And essentially, she didn't report that he was trying to commit suicide. So that's, like, failure to... And this is is good. I'm I'm excited about this because there's a lot of cases where these young children, 14, 15, are bullied so horribly and they kill themselves and, you know, they have zero chance at life. They have... I mean, this is all that they've... Rightness, they don't know what, you know, caring people are. And when these kids kill themselves and then these parents find out that they were being bullied so bad and they didn't say anything, Mm -hmm. even if there have been children who've tried to get help and weren't able to get help and they still killed themselves, like, this will put uh, something in place that will allow these grieving parents to hold these people culpable for what they did. right. Especially, well, I don't want to say especially if it's, like, somebody telling them to, but if they're already in a state that they're that fragile that they would even consider suicide as something of of an option, and you have somebody just not acting, but actively trying to get them to go through with it, it's... I mean, the, the point I want to make with this is that even if you're not close to somebody, even if you're not, like, their best friend or love them or whatever, if you see someone exhibiting these sort of suicidal thoughts, tendencies, talking that way, right. tell somebody. Right. Just tell somebody. Even if you personally are like, uh, oh, whatever. Yeah. 
Trust you someone. never know. You never know. Yeah, you could any say information. Life. It's not embarrassing. It's not. It's and even helping if, somebody exactly out. Even if they think they don't need help, yeah. like just just do it. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> just do it. And that was a PSA right? by Bad Beats Podcast. <laughs> just do it. <laughs> On a lighter note, let's talk about Bill Cosby. Right? Aww. Aww. <laughs> uh, so the other big piece of news that happened was the Bill Cosby verdict came back and it resulted in a hung jury and the judge ruled a mistrial. The prosecution has already announced that they are planning on retrying. So we'll see what happens with that. I always do kind of feel a little bit better, though, when it's something like a high-profile case like this, and there is a hung jury, because that means that I feel like the people who were on the jury were um, pretty strong-willed. I mean, it's not... I, I don't like seeing, because they're celebrities, they get off, or yeah. you, it, it definitely tends to be skewed in one direction, and the fact that they were you asking the amount of questions it. they were... Yeah. They were um, in deliberation for, it was like 53 hours, and they asked 12 questions. So, I mean, it's definitely something I feel like the jury was considering. So I would rather see something like this than somebody who is obviously guilty getting off, or in in the other side, somebody who is obviously innocent getting convicted. You mm-hmm. know, at least you feel like they definitely took everything into consideration yeah. and just couldn't come to a decision. So... We'll have to see what happens with that. I mean, that's kind of that on that news, but, like, I don't know. I thought we should talk about it, because it's kind of a big deal. <laughs> Bill Cosby is not just pudding. No. Um, <laughs> pudding. I have some news. Oh. It was Vicky's birthday. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was my birthday. So I got her a present, and I'm going to make her open it, and yeah. I want to hear gasps. She, she showed up, and she said, you have to open this on ear, so. You have to wait for it. There's a card. It's, I'm going to describe it to you as I open it. Yeah. Since you obviously are not watching, but You're I'm opening a card this. right now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to take pictures of you doing it, but I'm like, maybe not. Because she does not want people to see her while she's recording. I mean, I don't mind. I'm just normally in like, like right now I'm in like a t-shirt and leggings. It's basically my PJs. So the card has cupcakes on it. There's tarantulas on this card. Can I, is it okay if I, I read it? Yeah. Okay, yeah. There's tarantulas on, oh, yeah. I didn't even notice. It's creepy and sweet. I thought it was chocolate. They look like chocolate swirls. Anyway. <laughs> it says, happy birthday, Vicky. Congrats on what does that say? Karate chopping. Oh, karate chopping your way out of the womb. <laughs> you stayed sexy and didn't die, Janelle. Thanks, Janelle. Oh, I didn't. I don't know if I actually karate chopped out of the womb. That would make it much Let more exciting. We'll have to ask my mom, I guess. I think I was a C-section baby, <laughs> to be honest. Does that count as karate oh. chopping? This, yes. The wrapping paper is cats, by the way, with yes. hats and monocles and sunglasses and bows. I kind of love this wrapping paper. Uh, <laughs> I just want to. I'm going to be that old lady that like I'm going to save this paper. wrapping paper. You can save the tape and use it again. Every time I cut squares off, I'm like, let me save this. I can use it for something, and then I just have tiny squares everywhere. It's a tote bag. 
that says, you go, ghoul, like <laughs> G-H-O-U-L. That's so cute. And it's from, what is the actual name of these Killing guys? Killing Me Softly there you go. Company. Which I should check them out on Instagram. <laughs> they are so They have such cute stuff. This is so cute. I have the trick-or-treat-yourself bag. <laughs> yeah, check them out on Instagram. They have really adorable stuff. Uh, that, I think it's Janelle. That's so she cute. She makes dolls, too, and I really want to buy them. Oh, I know. <laughs> and machete pillows. Oh, I just want to buy everything. They had, around Halloween, it was like butcher knives and chainsaws. Oh. I was like, oh, my God, I want I all of these. So I just want my living room to be decked out in that, mm-hmm. in all of it. Okay, and this is a book. It is The Innocent Killer by Michael Griesbach, a true mm-hmm. story of a wrongful conviction and its astonishing aftermath. It's the Stephen Avery case. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. This I is so appropriate for today, actually. One, but I'm really excited really about this. high reviews. So I was like, mm-hmm. So, the story behind, I didn't even see this giant red circle that said the story behind the Stephen Avery murder case. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to read this. Thanks, Janelle. Oh, you're welcome. I'll hug you when we're not recording. Yeah. You muffled mic noises, which is like, poo, poo, poo. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to read this. I'm so excited. Ah. See, you guys got to experience my birthday presents with me. Yay. I'll have to come back and let you guys know how that book is, too, when I'm done with it. Yes. We'll have reviews by Vicky. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Alright, so this week, we're going to be talking about something that's kind of exciting. Well. I think it's exciting. I think that everything we talk about is exciting, like, honestly. Well, no. for this, though, I got so into the research, I was like, I'm pretty much a scientist now. Yeah. That's how I felt. But we do have an actual scientist. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to be talking about, we're going to be talking about junk science this week. All the beautiful, horrible, mm. forensic, and big, huge quotes yes. science that they use. And we have a special guest. Her name is Alina Nelson, and she is a medical laboratory scientist. Hello. <laughs> Do you want to tell us anything else about yourself? Uh, well, I'm your sister. Yep. Uh, she is She is my sister as well. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a medical laboratory scientist. I work at a hospital. Uh, I have a beautiful daughter. <laughs> you live on the West Coast, right? Yeah, I, I live out in uh, Washington currently, um, where it is very hot right now, and we have no air conditioning. Oh, no. Welcome to my life. <laughs> I also <laughs> do not have air conditioning. <laughs> okay, so um, she's just going to kind of help us with the science parts of this. <laughs> yeah, and thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for coming Oh yeah. here. <laughs> I know it's early out there, maybe not so much here. Yeah. <laughs> So thank you for waking up early. <laughs> um, so we're just going to talk about a couple different forensic sciences, um, fire science, ballistics, handwriting analysis, DNA, blood. We're going to get all up in it. Um, all, all up in it. All up in it. Ew. So that was really bad. <laughs> so what kind of like got me into this subject is there was actually an article that Rolling Stone had just put out uh, kind of talking about how the government and Jeff Sessions in particular is going to reevaluate the Obama administration's efforts to kind of pull back um, 
forensic sciences and have them sort of reevaluated and establish better methodologies and kind of go into um, creating a committee to kind of reevaluate how we use forensic sciences because there's been so many cases as of late um, where, you know, people have been jailed, put to death, and the science that they used to put these people in jail was wrong. Yeah. So, um, forensic science is, it's broad. There's a lot of different things that kind of, uh, they, like, courts and, you know, prosecutors and lawyers use to convict people. We're going to talk about, like, the big five, um, but if you go online and you look up forensic science, you're going to find, there's a science for everything. Oh, yeah. Like, carpet fibers is a science. Like, there's a science for everything. But um, we're just going to talk about, like, the misapplication of the forensic science. So um, misapplication of forensic science is the second most common uh, contributing factor to wrongful convictions. It was found that nearly half, so it was about 46% of DNA exoneration cases. So that's that's a big deal. Yeah. (laughs) 46%. So they went through and they examined, like, 300 cases through the Innocence Project. And they found that these sciences were misapplied. So these that's why the Innocence Project is also part... Well, thank God they exist today, oh because they have gotten a lot of people exonerated of these crimes, crimes that they definitely did not commit. Yes. Ugh. And it's difficult to call something a science when there is not any study of it or any sort of data. That's the other big issue, is, is data. Right. So we're just going to kind of go over some of them now. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to start with fire science. There's a lot of fire science used in arson cases, and fire science is kind of bullshit, right? Like, it... Yeah. I mean, does anyone here believe fire science is legit? No. No one? Melina? No one? I mean... (laughs) There's a lot of problems with it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Quite a few problems. Yes. Um... Fire science, it's difficult to determine whether something is arson or something has occurred naturally. Um, Many fires are caused by defective equipment, like, you know, faulty electricity, uh, car fires. Yeah. It could be anything. A fuel line, a pipe, just anything can start a fire in a car. Um, Spontaneous combustion can happen in a car because it's a combustion system. Hello. And... I have, like, a little list of things that I'm going to kind of read off. And this is kind of what they use to determine if something is considered an arson or if something is considered a natural cause of fire. So when they look at, you know, a fire in a house or not so much a car, this is more based upon, like, fires in buildings, this is what they look for. And these are the factors that help them determine whether or not something is arson. Um, So there's burp patterns um, that they look at to see if something was Poured. Right. Um, so if a fire burns in something more linear, they look at that and say, okay, well, that's probably an accelerant. Spalling of concrete, which is kind of like a almost microscopic kind of cracking and bubbling and uh, not necessarily burning, but... Yeah. So it's almost like to find out how hot the fire was. Yeah. Which definitely, I mean, that also tells, they say, tells you too how long it's been burning. If an accelerant was used, it would make mm-hmm. the fire burn hotter faster or what exactly. have you. 
um, alligatoring on wood surfaces or checkering. Oh, that alligatoring is an actual <laughs> quote unquote scientific term. Yes, these are scientific terms. Yes. Okay, um, so that's just you know bubbling up of the first couple layers of wood, especially if it's laminated. That will happen as well. Now, the issue with that is there are chemicals inside of objects. Mm-hmm. So the alligatoring and checkering of like a laminated table or flooring isn't necessarily going to tell you if there was an accelerant used because there's chemicals in those objects, especially on flooring. They use an adhesive and a bonding agent under those laminate floors, and that can be misconstrued as a burn pattern because of the way that these adhesive layers are laid. They're laid in a straight fucking line. Right. So it could look like it is a burn pattern when, in fact, that's just fucking glue. Yeah. (laughs) So... (laughs) Crazed glass, that's my favorite one. That's like crack. Is it crazy glass? It's crazy glass. It's cracked <laughs> and bubbled glass. Um, so when we have cheap, shitty glass, it, the crappy layers on top, those yeah. are the ones that bubble up. That's okay. what the crazed glass is. They also look at the location and the depth of a char. So that can also kind of give clues into how long something's been burning for. That's generally what they use it for. But, like, yeah. the depth of a char, like, that just sounds like a terrible band name. Depth and of char. Depth of char. We're depth of char. Uh, We're here to rock a saxophone. <laughs> it reminds me of, like, uh, I don't know, just like a stupid 80s metal band. Um, they also look at, like, if there's holes burned into, like, flooring or ceilings. Yeah. And then they look at melted or annealed metal. This is a big issue with fire science, because supposedly, and I'm going to bring a little conspiracy into this, okay? Think of 9-11 and think of the steel beams, okay? Okay. That's when they're talking about accelerant. Like, oh, it's impossible for a house fire to burn that hot to burn, you know, to melt metal without an accelerant. Okay. So they're saying, like, if a metal pipe melted, then the chances of an accelerant being used are higher because a house fire shouldn't burn that hot and melt a pipe. I also feel like there's so much shit in, like, everything around Especially a modern house. Yeah. All the, any wood used, paint, anything. Lacquers. There are couches in the house. Yeah. There are cabinets, like. Everything that we have now is highly combustible. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are some things that are flame retardants are put on, but that's very few things. Yeah. Uh, so all the materials that we use now to build a house and the things that we, you know, sit on, sleep in, they're right. all extremely highly flammable, and they will go up in a minute. Oh, yeah, totally. I live in a very old house. Yeah, you do. Um, <laughs> it is all wood. <laughs> yeah. And it's heavy. I have heavy wooden doors. So the chances of my house fire burning hotter than a modern home, very, very, very unlikely. Yeah. I have, it's, it's just wood. <laughs> right. Wood kindling. Yeah. Whereas something, in, you know, like in the house we're in right now, like, there's more plastics, there's more particle boards. That stuff is going to burn quicker and hotter. Yeah. And it's full of chemicals, so those right. things are going to make it be hotter. Good news, Tiff. Your house is going to burn down faster your house, than everyone else's. Your house is hot, Tiff. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing I will say about all of these, um, like, things that they use to measure the stuff going on in... Um, 
you know, house fires or whatever. A lot of this is stuff that's been passed down from mm-hmm. person to person. So somebody would get trained by somebody who's been in the field for years and years and years. And so their knowledge of how to measure all of these different elements comes from the person before that. And they would then in turn pass it on to whoever they're training. So it's not like there is necessarily a like a, a regulated science to right. how all of this is measured either. Exactly. Which just seems a little, I don't know. You it's, think they would have some sort of like regulations or they something? They have a that. school. You can go and learn about fire science. You don't necessarily have to be a firefighter to do this, but it is, it's basically like getting an associate's degree. It's mm-hmm. very limited knowledge and it is very grandfathered in information. Right. Yeah. There is very little, um, testing done and there's very, very little data. Yeah. That's why people are trying to get the forensic sciences looked at more because there is really no comparable data. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I can uh, say something, Janelle. I was just going to tell you that you can feel free to interject at any time. Sometimes we just get going <laughs> yeah, and don't know how to oh. stop. Okay. Yeah, no, I was just gonna, I was just gonna say that, um, you're gonna see a, a repeating theme throughout most of this stuff in, in forensics is going to be the subjectivity of the forensic sciences, especially with something like fire science. It's a very interpretive uh, fire chief that had a lot of experience doing the fire sciences. He had several younger, not as experienced people who were doing these inspections. And he, he found some pattern on the floor and he asked them, you know, what, what does this pattern mean? What does this pattern mean? Mm-hmm. And they all would, you know, come up with certain, you know, oh, it's this or it's that. And, and actually it wasn't, it wasn't anything. He was like, no, that's nothing. That's no, that doesn't mean anything. So you're going to have a lot of problems with um, interpretation, people finding things where there may not be anything. Yeah. It's extremely, extremely subjective. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> Um, and I do actually have a really interesting example of how it's not only subjective, but it's so fluid that it's easily manipulated by the investigators who are investigating oh, it. Extremely. <laughs> um, this was the case for Christine Bunch. She was convicted by a jury in 1996 of setting fire to her home in Indiana that actually killed her three-year-old son. She, at the time, received concurrent sentences of 50 years for arson and 60 years for murder, but she had no prior criminal history, she had no arrest record, she had no psychiatric history, anything. Um, but she was definitely the victim of this junk arson science in which fire investigators made unsubstantiated and unscientific claims that fire, that fires were arson when, in fact, they were entirely accidental. In her case, when the investigators found evidence that the fire was not intentionally set, they deliberately suppressed those findings and rewrote their report to hide the exculpatory information, which is oh like, holy moly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not surprised. And they like, weren't able on. to get this information out until after she had been convicted. Um, so here's what happened is early in the morning in June, on June 30th of 1999, a fire started in her home. She tried to get her son out who'd been sleeping in a different room, but she was unable to get to him. She openly tried to assist investigators in searching for the cause of the fire. But according to a civil rights lawsuit filed by the People's Law Office, the investigators, quote, wrongfully leapt to the conclusion that she had intentionally set the fire and then proceeded to fabricate evidence that supported and hide evidence that undermined that incorrect conclusion. 
Years later, it was revealed that the evidence which caused uh, the plaintiff's conviction was fabricated and unreliable, and that these defendants had deliberately suppressed in, uh, evidence which showed that the fire was not arson, but was in fact accidental. After coming to the conclusion that she had uh, set the fire, the investigators destroyed the likely cause of the fire, which was actually faulty wiring. Oh, God. That had previously caused multiple electrical fires at that home. Um, so they had suppressed that information. They identified what they claimed were poor patterns where accelerants had supposedly been poured, sent this evidence to the federal investigators to test for chemical residue, but when they didn't find any chemicals, the reports were changed to falsify to claim that they were. Um, they also failed to reveal in these reports that a lot of the chemical residues that were found everywhere else in the home were consistent with kerosene, and they had a kerosene heater at the home as well. Um, she, Christine, served 17 years in prison before she was exonerated with the help of the Center on Wrongful Convictions at the Bloom Legal Clinic at Northwestern University School of Law. And if you want to know a little bit more about this case, actually on the uh, podcast Wrongful Convictions with Jason Flom, season two, episode 13, he has Christine on and she tells wow. her story of being wrongfully convicted in this case thanks to great arson science. Oh, I mean... Um, that's just and that's why I mean that's how easy it is to just be like no they're poor patterns like because you don't really have anybody to like come back and refute what you're saying necessarily you exactly know? and then another there's a really famous case that's been on unsolved mysteries it's been on several other podcasts and that was Cameron Todd Willingham um, he lived in Texas and in 1991 his house burned down and three his three children were in there and they all died and. There was a oh, lot. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and yes. people said that he didn't go, he left the house, didn't go back in and all this other th- stuff. Mm-hmm. When in fact he did try to get them, but he basically had like a nervous breakdown and realized that he was not going to be able to save his children and like sat in the front of that house. Right. And lost his fucking mind. He was convicted right off the bat from the jump. They said because he didn't go back in there and try to save his children that he did it automatically. He yeah. was convicted and put to death. Yeah. And then. I want to say it was about 10 years later or so, uh, Dr. Gerald Hurst reopened the case to examine it um, for a paper that he was doing, and he found that the fire was absolutely not arson. And he is one of the top leading arson scientists in the United States. Um, this brought attention to some of the other Innocence Projects and uh, similar mm. uh, groups like that. Yeah. And they started to um, open other investigations for... Um, re-examination, and they found that several other fires that were considered arson in the state of Texas, where people were convicted and put to death, were also not arson. And the state of Texas refuses to come forward and say that they fucked up. Mm-hmm. Of that course. they put yeah. several people to death for this. Um, so, I mean, it's... <laughs> Yeah. It's crazy. It's there, mind-blowing. There was a case in Ohio where someone was convicted because they said that there were poor patterns, and the person who did the investigation had only been in fire science training for six fucking days. Oh, my God. Six days? And you're yeah. already giving testimony? What? Jesus. Um, I'm going to put up some articles on our website about fire science so you can kind of investigate it further. We're just going to briefly touch on most of these yeah. and really talk about DNA because that's the big one that people well, are... DNA covers a really, it's a really broad It's kind broad of and it's crazy. Yeah. Um, so the next one we're going to talk about 
is handwriting analysis. <laughs> oh, fucking handwriting analysis. When I was researching this, I wanted to punch everything. Because I was like, how the fuck is this a, let me just put giant quotes on it, science? How is people writing science? Well, and this is definitely one of those things that falls under the category of a visual science. Yes. This is the most subjective of them all. And they talk about that a lot, too. And we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, with things like hair and bite patterns. Like, those visual sciences, and even fire science, where you're looking at burn patterns. It's not like you can necessarily measure something down to, you know. It kind of reminds me of, I don't know if you remember in the 90s, those, like, Weird, like the three patterns where you had to kind of go cross-eyed. That you tried to find an object in. That's what fucking forensic science is to me. It's like, (laughs) let me stare at this cross-eyed until something jumps out at me. That's not how that works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, just to kind of, in case you wondered what handwriting analysis is, Mm. let me just break this down for you. So, handwriting analysis examines paper type, composition, ink origin, the composition of the ink, uh, they take different samples of a person's handwriting, and they line them all up, and they kind of just subjectively look at it. Um, so, (laughs) this is one of the sciences that is actually, people are reevaluating and considering kind of dismissing it from, uh, being evidence. Yeah. Um, I mean, only until recently people were started getting trained in it. So <laughs> right. they were just taking people and being like, can you compare these? And it wasn't even people who had any sort of degree in this or anything like that. Yeah. It's just basically people who have self-proclaimed themselves as handwriting analysis experts. Yeah. It just... It, it, I just don't understand. Like, there's no, there's no peer review process of this. There's no data. There's no, there's not a book. There's no general context that they get this stuff from. It's just all guessing. Well, and I think handwriting, along with some of these other things, I don't think that it's not necessarily useless when it Mm -hmm. comes to investigating crimes. I think there are things that you can gain from looking at some of these patterns that you would see, but you can't push the science past what it's able to do. Mm -hmm. Like, in this case, there's things like... Um, testing the ink composition and the paper composition. Like, that I get. That I'm like, yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Because if you can match it to something at a crime scene or... Right, you can find out who wrote a ransom note right. or, you know, if this person lived there. It just... Right. It becomes an issue when you're taking all of these different samples of handwriting and saying, oh, well, it, it can't be this person because they always write like this. People's handwriting changes throughout their life from mm-hmm. moment to moment. My handwriting, I was in a car accident and my hand was smashed. And my handwriting is completely different. Really? Completely different. It looks nuts. And you'd think it'd be <laughs> like riding a, like riding a bike. You would just go back to riding yeah. how you normally would. Because I have pain in my hand still, so it, it's hard for me to write certain ways, so I had to adjust my hand to be able to hold a pen or a pencil comfortably, and mm-hmm. my handwriting has changed. Right. The results of, like, handwriting comparison are not always accepted as evidence in court cases. Um, it's partially because the science is still kind of being developed. So what they're trying to do is kind of 
get more stringent and have more um, data to sort of back it up because there's no reliable error rate in uh, handwriting analysis. There's no system. Um, so there is a loose system. For, it's called Forensic Information Systems of Handwriting. This is what they use, they use to become handwriting analysis. It's kind of like, to put it in the terms that people can understand, it's kind of like a Grey's Anatomy for, <laughs> not the TV show, the medical book. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like a Grey's Anatomy book for handwriting experts, but it's something that anyone can buy. You don't have to go to college to get it. You can just fucking pick it up at a bookstore, read it, and yeah. then you're a handwriting analysis expert. So, um... I should become a handwriting analysis ex- handwriting expert. Analysis <laughs> expert. But the book basically kind of teaches you, like, uh... Comparisons between uppercase and lowercase letters. Um, How taking drugs, being tired or sick can affect your, your handwriting. And it just, that's like, that's it. It's just like, oh. So I'd be really curious to know if they have a guide that's like, if you're on this drug, this is what your handwriting does. If you're on this drug, this is what your handwriting will do or (laughs) like or how it'll change. It also explains like what's a good exemplar and what's a bad exemplar. So that's basically like, examples, like what, like, is this a good piece to analyze or is this a shitty piece to analyze? Yeah. Um, I feel like they should, uh, be analyzing multiple, um, examples, not just, oh, here, I found this example and I'm going to use this to compare your handwriting. Exactly. They generally use one to two pieces when they're, you know. Oh, that's it? Yeah. Oh no, I would I would think you'd need way more than just one or two. Yeah, it's it's not a lot. So like an example that I would have is the John Benet Ramsey case, the fucking ransom letter in that. Okay? So mm. the ransom letter in that was, you know, written with Sharpie on a piece of paper torn out of a notebook that they found in the kitchen and they're like, Oh, this was written by yeah. Patsy Ramsey and they're like, Oh, but it couldn't be because this one letter's not fucking her, the way she writes it. Yeah. And it's like when you're under Pressure. Maybe she was exhausted because it was the middle of the night. Um, maybe she was shook up because maybe she didn't kill her child, but she, her husband did, you know? So you have fear. You have tiredness. Yeah. All of these things can change the way you write something. I know when I write a note fast, it looks way different than when I write something slow and methodical. Yeah. You can also consciously change your handwriting. Right. So this, this, these are the issues that handwriting analysis has. It, there's too many variables to make it a science. Yeah. Well, and in that case, too, I don't know if either of you guys watched... Well, I know you did, because we watched it at my house, the thing with Laura um, Richards and Jim Clemente. Yes. Where they We're kind of... bring that up a lot. Reinvestigated. <laughs> the thing that I appreciated about that is, yes, they did this handwriting analysis, but they also paired it with... Um, an expert in language mm-hmm. and the use of language in the yes. letter. And I think when you can couple with something like mm-hmm. that, like I do think there is something to the language usage. So what they should, what I believe they should do is take out the comparison of the handwriting. What they need to do is strictly base it on linguistics mm-hmm. um, and like composition of paper, where this stuff is coming from. It's easier to link a ransom note by saying, oh, this is uh this office max paper, whatever weight, this person always buys that. Mm-hmm. And it's in their home. It's easier to say that they wrote that letter because all of the stuff that they have 
is on that letter. They have the same ink, they have the same pen, they have the same paper, as opposed to saying, oh, well, the way they write they looks the same. Like, yeah. no. <laughs> yeah. Well, now let me play a little devil's advocate, mm-hmm. because if you have seen the jinx, um, there is this big reveal towards the end of the series um, where they show Robert Durst. It was the letter that was the anonymous letter that was sent to the police after uh, Susan Berman's death and a letter he had written to Susan Berman that her son had found like in her things Mm -hmm. that were like dead on. I mean, they were dead on. So Mm -hmm. can you discount something like that? You know, if you're going to discount handwriting completely, can you discount something like that? That to me as just, you know, somebody with no background in this whatsoever. It looks identical to you. It is like dead fucking on. But you, know. you also have to take into consideration that people can copy handwriting. Yeah. yeah that's Frank Evangel made an entire career out of counterfeiting and copying people's handwriting to cash large checks to steal money from banks. That was his entire existence. The more we talk about this, I think I should have gone into something like that. Yeah. I, you know, making <laughs> I just a lot want more to be money a counterfeit right now. <laughs> counterfeit cashier's yeah. checks. Maybe. But there are people who can copy. I mean, I copied my mother's signature to sign a few things when I was in school, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, (laughs) I had a detention. Let me just write Regina. Identical. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) I was the bad child. I don't know anything. Alina was the good one, so that's why she's laughing. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, that's basically handwriting. Fuck handwriting analysis. I think it's garbage. <laughs> God. Okay. So now... <laughs> oh, man. We're going to talk about ballistics. This is about to get ballistic over here. Boo. No, boo. Bad joke. Dad joke. Uh. <laughs> that was a dad joke, and I'm done. Um, that's it. We're done. We're done with the podcast. Bye. Bye. No. <laughs> <laughs> so ballistics is obviously the study of guns and bullets. Um, and ballistics. And ballistics. <laughs> so what they do when they're looking at ballistics, it's like, oh God. They look, I just, the more I talk about this, the more I'm just like, ugh. This is all stupid and people are just guessing. Well, this looks right. It's like, no. What they do is they take... um you know, a gun from a crime scene. They buy a duplicate. They fire duplicate rounds, and they try to recreate the scene of a murder and see, oh, did they use this gun? Was it this type of bullet? Well, and doesn't it have to do with the, like, striations on the bullet? That's a word I picked up from CSI. I'm just putting that out there. Yeah. Yeah, so the striations are, they're created when a gun is fired and the bullet inside of it comes out. There are tools within that, they call them tools within a barrel, um, that cause the striation patterns and the marking on the bullet as it exits the gun when it's fired. They also look at the way a gun, a bullet hits something, so like into a skull, into a wall, you know, the way that they react with the object that they're piercing. Yeah. Um, forensics examiners measure, like, the bullet size to determine the caliber. Then they check, like, 
the direction of the rifling marks and the degree of the twist to narrow down the gun manufacturer. Um, they also look at the makeup of the bullet to kind of determine what kind of bullet it is. Um, and they match the specific firearm to the bullet. So the, uh, they do test firing of weapons. They put a new slug in. They compare them under a microscope. Again, this is a very visual science again, where it's like yeah. doing side by side comparisons of patterns. There's not, you can measure, you know, in distance or length and that kind of thing, but like, it definitely is. Does this look the same? So, yeah, and the, and the problem, the problem is too, they don't have any, um, there's uh, no actual standards that I believe are used, um, or error rates, etc., to determine if these are matches or not. There's nothing that says, okay, this constitutes a match if I have, you know, 99% or, or what have you. There's nothing that states that. Exactly. Yeah. They do use, there is an in, international database that these ballistics uh, researchers use. However, the database was created without stringent scientific methodology. So it was very loosely put together with very loose data that was not researched. And it's an <sighs> international standard. So think about that for a minute. I yeah. just, it's kind of like, so there was a comparison between fingerprint analysis as well, because not a lot of yeah. research has been done yeah. with fingerprint analysis. Um, they say that everyone's fingerprint is unique. However, the um, pressure at which you touch something and whatever is on your hands can affect the way that your fingerprint um, is presented. Okay. Um, so, like, say, the, uh, the pounds per square inch when you push on something. Oh. Um, okay. It can actually get rid of some of the lines within your fingerprint. Yeah. So the same sort of thing occurs when you're shooting a gun. So... The way that the bullet exits is not going to be exactly the same in every single shot you make because nothing is identical. You could have an entire case of bullets and they're still going to exit that gun differently. Right. Because we're humans. We error a lot. Even though these are made by machines, yeah. there's still that slight variation in everything, whether it be a microscopic, tiny yeah. centimeter difference. Well, and there's even things out there. Now, this might sound a little out there, but... <laughs> we are out there. I know. Well, I was, I was watching one of those, it was like the underground, like, super bad people shows where everybody's wearing, oh, like, like... Drugs, like, Inc. Yeah. <laughs> like that. It's one of those where everyone wears, like, the bandanas over their faces, or they're all wearing masks or whatever the whole time they're on. Yes. They were talking about illegal gun trade, and they're is a way for them to make it so the barrels are untraceable mm -hmm. so that you don't get a trace of anything on the bullets. Exactly. You know, so that's <laughs> always a possibility too, that there is nothing to compare it to because you're not exactly. getting anything off of what's coming out of the gun. And you can, I mean, I've seen plenty of like forensic ID shows um, yeah. where they, they'll go into a setting, they'll take uh, maybe the exact gun that was used at a crime scene and uh, the same type of bullet from the same lot number Mm -hmm. that they found and they will shoot it into a fucking barrel and they're like okay this is our this is our test this is what we compare it to i'm sorry what <laughs> you're going to shoot it into a barrel inside of a controlled lab 
and you're going to compare it to what was shot in maybe, say, outside in a park into a fucking tree? Like, those are not comparable. Yeah. It does not make sense to me why this is used in a court of law to determine something. Uh, It's nonsense. Well, then, I mean, that gets into a lot of misuse of quote-unquote expert testimony. Exactly. It's know? like saying Mythbusters and, is the fucking word of law. Well, and the standard, <laughs> the standards for what actually constitutes who is an expert and who is not, I mean, exactly. they're so loose on, like, if you can go to a court of law and say, I am an expert in, you know, this field. Right, because there's not, I mean, you can go get a degree in something, but that doesn't mean necessarily that, that what you were taught is the word, is true. Right. Um, so they use that international database, and then the ATF has a National Integrated Ballistics Information Network. That's also something that they use. Again, this is just something that was put together by the ATF um, based upon their findings and the use of that international standard program. But lab techs rely more on visual inspections to make the final call as opposed to using these programs. So again, that's another layer of subjectivity. So I wonder, (laughs) do you ever wonder if these people who are doing these forensic investigations are subject to like, say, routine eye exams? Yeah. And if your eyes have to be held to a certain standard? I would think so. I mean, I I even have to have an eye exam uh, to a certain extent. It's more, um, you know, color. Uh, for being a medical technologist, so I would think that they would have to, but who knows? I yeah. mean, you want to know how good somebody's eyes are if they're exactly like, if that's if what they're so using. Solely relied on that's looking. their tool, yeah. Um, so there has actually been a couple uh, police departments, uh, Detroit in particular. They were audited a couple of years ago, and their crime lab was shut down. Because they found ten, per, there was a ten percent error rate in their ballistics identification. That's really high. That is, that is. I know ten percent doesn't sound high, but um, for a scientific like review of something, ten percent is too high for an error rate. Yeah. So um, I'm just going to mention a case uh, that I found interesting when I was researching this. Um, Anthony Ray Hinton, uh, he's a death row inmate in Alabama. He was actually exonerated and released last April. Um, He was convicted for the murder of two restaurant managers during a string of robberies, um, and those string of robberies were determined based upon ballistic evidence. So a gun was found at his home, and it was linked to bullets found at three robbery locations. So they, they sentenced him, and he died in jail. But in 2014, the Supreme Court called for a new trial because um, there's new evidence and people were pushing and saying that, you know, he was innocent um, and because he died in jail, he wasn't able to appeal or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, a similar group to the Innocence Project took up the case and pushed it all the way to the Supreme Court. And they found that the bullets found at the crime scene did not match each other Oh, and did not match his gun. So the examiners concluded that the previous ballistics results were botched and that Hinton, well, he was supposed to be killed and he was set free. Um, there was so many people sitting on death row. Yeah, he was set free, right? Why did I think he was killed? That, oh, I'm mixing two people together. Because <laughs> yeah. there was 
another case I You at. might have said that he died in prison, because I, I think... <laughs> I was thinking of someone else. Okay. Hinton died in prison, but there was another guy, because I was talking about the Michigan and Detroit. There was a guy in Detroit who actually died in prison. Um, no, Hinton he did, did not die he, in prison. Hinton did not die yeah. in prison. The guy who was in Michigan died in prison, but he wasn't on death row. That's yeah. where I'm getting mixed up. Yeah. There's too many people. Um, Which so, is terrifying. It's terrifying. Yeah. Um, so Hinton was on death row, and he was going to be died, but he was released. Um, going to be died? He was going to be died. He was going to be killed <laughs> and died. So he, he spent 30 years in prison. Jesus. Before he was exonerated. I know. And I, so think about that now. If I were to spend 30, I'd get out of prison when I am 57 is when I would get out of prison. Yeah. It's just, it goes to show, like, it's so subjective and people are just like, I mean, I get lazy at my job, my job sometimes and I'm like, this is good enough. And I'm sure it happens in these labs. Yeah. I mean, the, the major component in all of these is human error. Yeah. Human error is the key to all of these fuck-ups. Yep. We're I humans. Mean, we make mistakes. I just erred reading. Yeah. I was just reading to you and I fucked up. <laughs> I'm sure to that... error is human. Yeah, right. Okay? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Ballistics, it's like, take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, Take for it sure. with a grain of salt. Ooh. Come on. No. Well, then imagine, imagine too, in some of these uh, facilities, they're not always separated. These forensics uh, labs are not always separated from uh, the police or the investigators. So not only are you, you know, likely to err just being a human, but on top of it, imagine having somebody like breathing down your back. We've got somebody in custody. We need this. You, You know, this is the person. There was a six-year-old that was, you know, shot or, you know, raped or what have you. And that's going to put even more pressure to pull out your results faster, which is you're more likely to have um, less accurate results that way. Well, and I I wonder if that explains, too, why a lot of the error seems to go in the favor of, you know, the police or the prosecution exactly. or the state's attorney or... Exactly. Yeah. The uh the next sort of forensic science we're gonna like I said sort of sort of sort forensic, of forensic science, science. Uh, they're gonna discuss <laughs> is blood spatter. I keep wanting to call it blood splatter. I'll be honest, I feel like I've called it blood splatter my entire life until I saw it typed out on our notes. And it's spatter. Did not know that. Now you know. <laughs> um so, blood spatter is the interpretation of blood stains at a crime scene in order to recreate the actions that caused the bloodshed. Now, that's a beautiful sentence. Um, <laughs> uh, so, the first modern study of blood stains was in 1895 by Dr. Edward Piotrowski in the University of Krakow in Poland. And he published a paper that was titled on the formation, form, direction, and spreading of blood stains after blunt trauma to the head. So that was kind of the first sort of uh, expedition, so to speak, into blood spatter yeah. patterns. Blood spatter patterns. Blood, that sounds blood <laughs> that's fun. So the way that they kind of figure out blood spatter is that they look at the scene 
they plot it out, not unlike with ballistics where they have, you know, the strings and the tags and everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, they do very similar methods when they're doing blood spatter. They photograph, they map it out, and then they go back to a um, controlled environment and they recreate the crime scene and what they kind of figured happened based upon other evidence. Uh, again, extremely subjective and yeah. absolutely impossible to completely recreate a scene in a controlled environment. Yeah. If you, if, I mean, truly, if you want to do it, you would do it there. Well, and especially, it yeah. sounds like it's like, <laughs> the well, this scene. is kind of what we think mm-hmm. happened, so let's try this and we'll exactly. just see if it matches. So there are a lot of variables that can affect the findings, for instance, like the temperature, the environment in which it happened in, blood type, any sort of blood diseases, clotting issues, anemia, gravity, the viscosity of the blood, surface tension. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of these things can affect the way that blood spatters. Now, I know I discussed this previously with Alina about um, anemia and the way that clotting diseases can affect uh, blood spatter. Do you want to kind of discuss, Alina, how those can affect blood spatter? Yeah. Um, so you can have something as simple as, like, um, iron deficiency anemia um, or any type of anemia, for that matter. Anything that's going to affect your what's called your hematocrit. And your hematocrit is... Uh, Basically, the percentage of your blood that's uh, red blood cells. Um, and so red blood cells are your major contributing factor to the viscosity of blood. And so um, as you have a higher or a lower hematocrit, that will affect the viscosity and how that blood will travel through space, how it will land, etc. And um, there's also things like cl- uh, clotting problems. Um, some people clot easier. Um, they might have something like Factor V Leiden. And other people, um, they will clot uh, slower. Maybe they're on Coumadin or some. Uh, they have um, some type of... Uh, Diabetes can affect your clotting. Um, not necessarily, but um, you, it can probably affect um, maybe the viscosity of the blood. Um, so... It's it's generally people with diabetes will generally have um, maybe a clotting problem in addition, um, just because of poor health <laughs> and eating. <laughs> so, but yeah, so all of this stuff um, will affect how the um, your clotting abilities are going to affect how quickly that uh, blood will dry. If you're not clotting very quickly then, you know, that has um, maybe more of a chance for the blood to pool out a little bit more. So it might change the shape of your um, speck of blood or your drop of blood. Okay. Do you know if um, there, if they, say, had a victim that they knew had some sort of blood disorder like anemia or something like that, if they would be able to easily simulate that if when they're trying to test for for you know, the blood spatter patterns? It would be easier probably on the victim. Um, but I don't think it's really something um, you can't necessarily, because most of the stuff is going to be dried. Unless you've got an active pool of blood that's not coagulated or dried yet, you're not really going to be able to test hematocrit on it. Um, 
it has to be liquid. It has to be liquid so that you can separate out the cellular portion versus the um, liquid portion of the blood. And um, so, like I was saying, it would probably be more something that you could tell with the victim. So um, with the with the suspect, you're not really going to know because most of the time that stuff's going to be dried already. And so um, it, you're going to have this pattern, but you, you don't know if that person has a different viscosity of their blood. Let me ask you this. So then dry blood analysis versus liquid blood analysis, how accurate are these findings for blood that is dried versus something that is liquid and flowing? I'm actually not too sure on that, but I would think that there would probably be some type of variation. Um, oh, probably also like uh, temperature, um, like if it's hot, evaporation, things like that. I would think that those would all uh, affect, um, you know, the drying of the of the pattern. I do know that um, that sometimes they will actually cut out carpeting and things like that and take them back with them. I don't know if that's any any more helpful, you know, because I know you were saying like at the scene of the crime, if they were doing it at the scene of the crime. I don't know if that's any more helpful to them trying to figure out as far as like location of the victim and things of that nature. But, you know, as far as like drying, drying patterns, I, I'm not sure how accurate those are. Yeah. Um, so when they're doing these blood spatter analysis, they're using it because they want to, you know, figure out the point of impact, the height of the perpetrator, mm -hmm. the type of weapon used, um, and like, you know, the age build, all that stuff. Uh, and, but it also kind of helps to determine the time of death and the environmental conditions. However, I don't know what, when we were watching that John Benet Ramsey, um, yeah. The, it what was the hell with, was it called? I can't even remember. It, it was with it was with Lauren Richards and right Jim now. Clemente. It was I'm, on CBS. Yes, yeah. I'm brain dead the right case now. of Jean Bidet? Is that what it was? Finding Jean? I don't know. Something like that. Something about Jean Bidet. I think about Jean Bidet with those two. They did a reenactment <laughs> in it with a ten year old boy yeah. with like the mag light, with the right? mag light yeah. hitting. Um, uh, it was a pig's head. A pig's head with a fucking wig on. Yeah. To determine blood spatter. Now, that sounds far-fetched and ridiculous, but quite literally, that is what they do in a lab setting to yeah. determine blunt force trauma. Yeah. That's like backyard science. It right. is. It is like backyard. It is like a MythBuster. I'm going to keep bringing up MythBusters and JonBenet Ramsey in this. <laughs> um, it is like a MythBusters. Oh, it's like, uh, do Bic lighters explode in your car? They said no. Guess what? I had two fucking Bic lighters explode in my car. <laughs> so you tell me, MythBusters. Who knows? She's calling you out. <laughs> She's calling you out. Yeah. Open to interpretation. There are always variables that you cannot account for. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I love science and I love learning about it, but there is still parts that you you can never, ever test. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I was reading an article uh, about a, a man who used to work in uh, a laboratory who tested, um... Blood work, and he was saying that in this article, I'll put it up too. It kind of goes into um, a story that the Texas Observer did about blood spatter and evidence. Um, he stated that he has never seen a properly controlled scientific experiment conducted with a single independent variable and rigorous hypothesis testing done with blood spatter. 
He's never seen it. He's never seen a case of blood spatter analysis done where he can say without a doubt that it was rigorously tested and they adhered strictly to the scientific method. That's a person who worked in a lab. Jesus. So, if that tells you anything. Yeah. I mean, there is also a, a, there's an example that he used of uh, Warren Hornick in Fort Worth, Texas. A lot of these are in Texas. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sex is a fuck. Um, in 1995, and he was convicted pretty much solely based on blood spatter patterns. That's nuts. We'll put the article up from the Texas Observer, but Mm -hmm. the blood spatter testimony from the quote-unquote expert is the reason why he was convicted, and it was completely fucking wrong. Yeah. It was just made-up nonsense. I just, I... Well, and again, this kind of comes down to, to what does it take to call yourself an expert in exactly. that field? I mean... So I don't think there's any standards. I don't think there's any standards as far as that's concerned. Um, like, with me, I have to go to a specific school. I had to take a test. I have to maintain my competency. So I have to do continuing education, and I have to have it in certain areas because I'm a generalist. So, and I don't know that they have anything like that for forensics. That just, which seems wild because it's literally yes. something that could mean life or death. That's why the Obama administration, right before he left office, they were trying to put together basically like a task force of people to come together so that they could start having regulations and having peer reviews right. of these forensic sciences. And now here comes fucking Trump into office and Jeff Sessions is like putting the kibosh on it. And he's like, no, yeah. fuck this. We're not going to go into it. Which I know we've said before, we don't like to get too political on the podcast. It's not really what we're about, but this is a case where the decisions are affecting... People's um, lives. Well, they all are, but <laughs> it's, affecting, it's affecting the forensic field, which really, yeah. in turn, has an impact on how things are handled in court. And, you know, <sighs> I mean, kind of if stuff. it starts fucking with the judicial system so much so that we're overturning, what was it, 20-some percent of fucking convictions are wrong. Yeah. And that was a data that was from years ago. Yeah. There is, <laughs> so I'm going to talk about about this a little more later, but this podcast, Wrongful Convictions with Jason Flom, he has this quote um, that he, I think, has repeated more than once on a couple of episodes that really has kind of stuck with me. And it's that one out of um, ten people who are executed are innocent. Mm-hmm. And if one out of ten planes crashed... Um, when you were flying, people wouldn't fly. Exactly. So that's, I don't understand why that is an acceptable rate of having people wrongfully convicted because we still use sciences like these that are completely unfounded. Exactly. And I understand that a lot of them were grandfathered in hundreds yeah. of years ago. Um, but everything needs to be reevaluated constantly. That is what the Absolutely. justice system is. Yep. You take it, you reevaluate it, you make it better. You cannot solely base someone's conviction on one of these or two yeah. of these sciences. Well, and it's continuing and to reevaluate it, too, because if we didn't continue to try to get better science, we wouldn't have things like DNA. Exactly. Which has now exonerated so many people from these really shitty sciences we have. Exactly. DNA is one of the few that is so rigorously tested, yeah. and that's what they need to bring to these other sciences, is they need data, rigorous testing, and some sort of actual standard that is taught, right. not just, like, yeah. loosely talked about. Absolutely. 
So we're going to go now into the big guy, DNA. The big guy. Um, we're <laughs> just going to have, you know, we're going to have Lena to kind of talk about what DNA is. Um, but basically, we're, we're not saying, I don't want people to get, you know, the wrong idea. We're not saying that DNA science in itself is junk science. We're saying that sometimes the way it's mishandled yeah. makes it a junk science. So just keep that in the back of your mind when we're discussing this. I don't want anyone to be, like, thinking that we don't think that DNA evidence is important. No, in because fact... Because it is important. DNA is probably one of the, the most more <laughs> exact sciences you can get when yeah. you're trying to... It's when people start putting that human error into it mm-hmm. is the issue. So we're going to kind of explain what it is, how it's collected, um, and how it's used, and then we'll talk about... How you can fuck it up. Yeah. So, Alina, if you want to take it away with DNA. <laughs> actually, just real quick, the, one of the things I find amusing is that courts have actually um, requested uh, showing from DNA of, of the exact amount of individualization that this testing yields. And it's beca- it has come under more scrutiny than all of these other areas of forensic science, which I, I find quite laughable because it's one of the only ones that has, you know, been standardized and tested rigorously. Um, so, yeah, I know. It's it's quite amazing. Um, so, basically, I was just going to go into a little bit about um, how they do uh, what is called as DNA fingerprinting. And so... Um, Basically, you know, everybody, I'm going to say everybody, but a lot of people are familiar with DNA. Um, It's the information that is contained inside of our cells. So most of it we do share as humans, but there are going to be little parts of your DNA that are very variable. And um, they're they're enough when you use multiple uh, sections over multiple chromosomes it's going to be enough to be able to individualize a person. So um, basically what they use nowadays is um, what are called short tandem repeats. So basically it's a short repeating sequence of DNA, and they're going to pick these areas out, and the FBI, I believe, uses about 13 different ones. And so, and they do this over, again, over several different chromosomes to just really increase the likelihood that this is, you know, one person versus somebody else. And so they use a technique called PCR, and this has enabled them to be able to use um, DNA on the scale of, like, you can have, like, one nanogram, okay, one nanogram of DNA, And basically, to give you an idea, a grain of salt weighs about 58,500 nanograms, okay? A small amount of DNA that is not visible to the eye, okay? So that's probably what you'll be talking about eventually with the touch DNA. Um, So so, uh, these areas are what are called highly polymorphic, so they have greater than or equal to nine different alleles. So if you think about it, um, like eye color or um, blood type, they don't have very many variations. You have like the ABO, you have ABO, okay? Um, and this is, these areas that they use have a lot more variation, and that's the key. So uh, the PCR, um, like I said, is able to amplify very, very small amounts of DNA. 
um, of these specific regions. And then they put this through this um, what's called a gel electrophoresis, and this is going to help separate out the different areas based off of the size. And then um, basically by the end of this, you, you're you going to have um, odds that are less than one in a billion that two people are going to match based of all, uh, off of these different sections of DNA. So uh, some, of, some of the problems isn't necessarily with the fact that this is, um, that there's no, there's no dispute that when done correctly, that this is going to give a high amount of individualization. The problem comes from taking this stuff from crime scenes where things are going to be degraded. You're going to be based on, uh, this is the, the collection is going to be based off of whether or not that tech is doing what they're supposed to. Are they changing gloves between objects? Are they wearing a mask? They don't cough or sneeze. And transfer their own DNA onto it. Um, and the other thing is uh, not only you know how it's collected, but how it's stored. Heat, sunlight, water, or moisture—all of these things degrade the DNA. And the more degraded it is, the less you're going to have um, those different um, points on the chromosomes that are going to pop out. So where you might have 13 at the beginning with a really good collection, now maybe you only have five or six different points that you're looking at, and that's going to decrease your probabilities, um, you know, that this is a specific person. Uh, so when they, when someone is giving a testimony and they say a whatever point match, they're talking about uh, the amount of individualization that they're finding? Correct, yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, and the other thing too, that's been, um, the other thing that's, that's really hard is you're going to have things like mixed profiles. So, um, at crime scenes. So generally speaking, especially when a victim is fighting back, you're going to have not only the blood of your victim, but the blood of your suspect. And if you've got multiple suspects, that's going to make it even worse. So now you have this pool of DNA and you have to try and separate these out. So what they usually do is um, by subtraction. So they take the blood um, from the victim in a controlled setting, like um, a lab setting. And so they're going to take blood from the victim. They're going to take saliva from the victim, and they're going to make profiles. Now, here's where some of this um, starts to go awry in certain cases. So there was a case, um, he was a teenage boy that was convicted of rape. And when they went back and they looked at this case, they found out that the tech who did the DNA analysis couldn't even get a single DNA profile from just the lab controlled portion of it. So how was she then supposed to um, figure out from this mix? It was a vaginal specimen with seam, two different semen and um, specimens in it. So how was she supposed to even get those DNA profiles from a mix sample if she couldn't even get one from an actual lab controlled sample? So this is where you're going to start to see your problems is, you know, in tech, in tech interpretation and in their abilities as far as, um, you know, how well they were trained um, and, and error rates, contamination, you know, 
this is another thing. We're using smaller and smaller amounts of DNA. So that's great. I can, I can get this small amount of DNA and I can get a, a profile from it. The problem with that is, is that DNA is highly transferable. The study, there was a study that showed that uh, sperm cells from a single stain on a, a piece of clothing made their way onto every other item of clothing in that washer. Wow. There's other things, too. People shed cells at different rates. Okay, so the last person who touched an object, that might not even be the strongest profile on that object. It could be somebody who had touched it, like, 10 days ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different variables still with DNA. But, again, when it's done correctly, it is a fantastic, very individualized way of um, convicting a, a felon. Yeah. And you talk about all that over, like, other contamination. It just made me think, again, of that John Bonet thing. In it, they, they literally got, it was a brand new package of girls' underwear sealed, unopened, mm-hmm. that they opened at the lab with gloves and everything on and tested it. And there was, like, a couple of different DNA profiles on it. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Because, I mean, these... There are people physically handling things in foreign countries. They seal these objects. They send them over here for sale. We buy them. There's already DNA on these things. There's DNA everywhere. Which is, like, kind of gross if you think about it. Right. They're not wearing wearing gloves when they're packaging something. has someone else's DNA on it. So that's another issue, too. (laughs) Because that's that's what touch DNA is. It's literally someone just... Touching something, yeah. and it's getting transferred on all these things. Now that happens a lot with lab technicians who don't know what they're doing. As Elena mentioned before, you're supposed to change your gloves basically in between everything that you touch. That's not only the the lab techs, but it's also like transferring. Like you have a bunch of people in your house, right? So if you touch one object, that somebody who is just visiting your house now it's maybe on like the murder weapon or something. That's that's it's also to protect other other um, people and that might have their DNA profiles in there. Correct. Mm -hmm. Um, So they were, um, there was a case not too recently and I was trying to find the article for it. I did post it on our Facebook not too long ago. Okay. Um, There was a lab technician who was purposefully cross contaminating samples and she had done this for like 30 cases and convicted 30 people. Like, oh it, it got gosh. 30 people convicted for crimes, and they were mostly sex crimes, too. So... That is just ridiculous. You also have to take into consideration not just people's incompetency, but maliciousness, uh, people setting other people up. There was that serial killer that they thought was might have been involved in the Stephen Avery case who went around... Um, oh, yeah. He was the one who contaminated crime scenes with other people's DNA to get other people convicted. Well, and I've even heard stories of, say, a lab having a certain um, requirement for their lab techs to meet um, Mm -hmm. as far as, uh, I mean, I don't know which production rate, essentially, of how many tests you can get done. And there was somebody who was speeding up the tests, and she was getting this crazy rate of production way over everybody else and they went back and looked and a large majority of those tests were incorrect or you know so messed up that they had to 
I'm not, I'm not sure if they still do this, but, um, I believe that certain, um, facilities were giving monetary compensation for anybody who had a DNA profile that ended in a conviction. Oh my gosh. Oh my god. That's kind, that's kind of unbelievable, cause that would definitely be, like, incentive to... To purposefully fuck something up. Right? Exactly. Well, and especially when you're talking about a lot of the agencies who are doing this testing are, um, like, uh, they're either related to the police department or to... um, There's not a lot of third parties. Yeah. And depending on where you're at, you, you know, there's jurisdictions that might say you can only get your DNA testing from X, Y, and Z, and if they happen to be a police department and a federal agency, Mm -hmm. you can't really get, like, you know... Yeah. An independent agency in there that, to do it Yeah, for there's you. always corruption. There's always... I mean, the major factor in all of this is, is human error mm-hmm. and and just indecency, really, yeah. when it comes to things like that. But the one thing that I thought of when I was looking into DNA was the Amanda Knox case oh and gosh, the yeah. bra clasp evidence. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of funny that uh, Alina had mentioned the semen stuff because they had found Amanda Knox's DNA and her boyfriend's DNA on the clasp of the bra from, uh, Kirshner was her? Yeah. Kirshner. Yeah. Kirshner. Um, on the clasp of her bra. Now they shared an apartment together. His DNA was everywhere. Amanda Knox's DNA was everywhere. And Kirshner's DNA was everywhere. Yeah. Who's to say she didn't wash her bra with something of Amanda's. Right. And, yeah, they ha- her boyfriend and Amanda were having sex, you know. So his DNA is going to be all over her clothing, yeah. all over her bed sheets, all over the towels. Yeah. So who's to say that that DNA evidence that they found on the clasp of Kersher's bra wasn't just from being transferred from sitting on the floor, being in the washer, being in the bathroom, which is shared by everybody? Right. Yeah. Oh, and here's here's another one. There's a there was a man convicted of of murder. Um, there was DNA found underneath the victim's fingernail, and so that, that that's what they used. Um, they found out that they that both this man that was accused and the man the victim had shared paramedics. Oh, oh my gosh! Yes, and so they used. Um, there's a device that if you've ever been to like the hospital, there's a device that they put on your finger, a pulse ox oximeter, and um, yeah, that's what it was. They both had used that pulse oximeter. Yeah, because they don't wipe those off, really. Yeah, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Yeah, it depends on the person, and they just had, I mean, I don't know if there was no protocol for it or what, but, yeah, they just happened not to, and so that's where the, where it came from. That's well, and isn't touch DNA, crazy. like, this idea that just by touching something you can transfer, isn't that relatively recent, too? Yeah, because they've been getting convictions based off of touch DNA, which to me is absolutely fucking insane. Yeah. I mean, how, and usually the touch DNA is, like Alina said previously, extremely, extremely, extremely small samples. Like the smallest of the small samples that you could get. Yeah. So I know you had a case that you want to discuss, so let's oh, yeah. get into that it's one. It's going to change gears just a little bit, mm-hmm. um, because kind of in this realm of DNA, you also have things like hair samples right. and bite samples. Um, or like bite marks, I found this really great Washington Post article actually about, um, (laughs) 
you see the title, FBI admits flaws in hair analysis over decades. Um, But basically, the last, or not last year, in uh, 2015, the FBI formally acknowledged that just about every examiner in the FBI laboratory's microscopic hair comparison unit gave flawed testimony at almost all of the trials that they offered evidence uh, against criminal criminal defendants. It was over more than two, like this two decade period before 2000. Um, this, I'm just going to read this part right from the article because it's some statistics and things, but of 28 examiners within this, um, hair comparison unit, 26 overstated forensic matches in ways that favored prosecutors in more than 95% of the 268 trials reviewed so far. And again, this was from 2015. Um, they have decided that they are trying to go over, like, trying to go over all of this information now oh to see God. what cases might have been affected. Um, 32 of those cases, the defendants were sentenced to death. Of those, 14 have already been executed or died in prison. Um, and they're... They were supposed to release this review of the first 200 convictions. That being said, um, I've also seen things like this happen where they say we're going to go through all of this and they start to go through all of it publicly and then Mm -hmm. it somehow falls by the wayside and then it doesn't really get taken care of. That being said, this effort to kind of review these these cases of hair as evidence, um, the Innocence Project is involved and they're really good about staying on top of um, like any of these things that... They need to get re-examined. Um, but hair is considered a pattern-based forensic technique that is really similar to, like, bite marks. And this was before they were able to pull DNA out of uh, hair samples. They would right. take, like, a, you know, they would cut the hair. Yeah. They put it side by side. Ball, yeah. It's actually kind of similar to how they would do it with, um, like, bullets and ballistic testing. Yeah. Um a good example of this is Timothy Bridges, who was uh, wrongfully convicted and served over 25 years for a rape and a burglary. And it was based largely on the testimony of an FBI-trained state hair analyst that claimed that Bridges' hair linked him to two hairs found on the scene. DNA testing on the crime scene evidence would actually exclude him. Um, and his wrongful conviction case was the first, one of the first to use uh, this erroneous microscopic hair testimony from an FBI trained state examiner. So his was actually oh one of the first ones after they found out all of this testimony was faulty mm-hmm. um, to be then exonerated of the crime because of DNA testing. So that is something that they need to get rid of that hair testing. Cause I would be really interested for them to do a study where they, where they take hair samples, like the, out of several different people, and they have these people compare these hair samples, but also do, do DNA, uh, you know, the DNA type evidence at the same time, and see how many of these people accurately pick out hairs, um, compared to the DNA. Like, a, this would be like, obviously a controlled, a controlled type of experiment that would be set up. I would just be interested in, in that and seeing how, how accurate they are. Um, Alina, how difficult is it to pull DNA from a hair sample as opposed to saliva or blood? Um, it, it's going to depend. It's going to depend. Like, hair samples, you have to have the root um, because that's 
yeah, you, you have it's all keratinized the, the rest of the hair. So you're going to need to have uh, the root where you have active cells. Um, um, you, you need the nucleus to get the DNA. Um, so, um, you know, as long as you have the, the root um, and, and saliva, saliva is going to be a little bit different because unless you have um, cells that have been shedded through the saliva, you're not you're not going to get a DNA profile from it, but it's not very hard to get DNA profiles from anything really anymore um, if you have a good sample. So just a fresh sample, something that has a nice amount of cells in it, because like I said, you, you don't need that very much DNA anymore. Sure. Right? I mean, in the news too, a lot of backlog rape kits that have been sitting in, oh my um, God, yeah. you know, inside of, police departments for 30 plus years and they're trying to push yeah. people to to finish what they've started and complete these rape kits and actually get the DNA evidence right. and they're running into these issues where they've been sitting for so long in, in uncontrolled con- environments where it's degrading the DNA so much so that they can't, that they can't even pull DNA from it anymore yeah. and this is why I mean this kind of goes hand in hand with uh, the forensic science type thing because it's, it's human error you should have done your job. Right. You should have tested that DNA right away and gotten a profile. The problem is a lot of these places are understaffed. Yeah. And so the and the other problem is if you if you push people to finish these, then you're going to get more inaccurate results. So what they need to do is they need to they need to be able to either move this to um, a private sector type thing or they need to increase their budget. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, to me, what that's saying is that your crime doesn't matter for us to figure out a way to proceed. Yeah. I mean, it's women. It's women who are getting the short end of the stick here because it's, oh, it's just a rape kit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That, those kits can, I mean, not only do rapists rape, but they also murder. So these rape kits can help connect murders and serial killers and all these other things and it's just it blows my mind that people don't give a shit enough to be like we need to get this going yeah although to alina's point when we you know a couple episodes we did um on cleveland i talked about the cleveland strangler Mm -hmm. and in one of his victims there was a rape kit done and for some reason it didn't get tested because they were so understaffed and the amount of um, reports coming in for rapes and um, assaults were so high that the sex crimes division just didn't have the manpower. To yeah, test how it. many people did they have? Like it was a handful. A, yeah. It was like less than and this 10. Was, less and that than was five, in like I think. 2005, maybe. Yeah, so we're still. I mean, so still that was that as long ago. still as a society, we're struggling yeah. with getting these things done. And it's like, at what point is it more important? To fucking get the DNA testing done. You know, it, it, there needs to be a reevaluation of how we process this stuff right. and how we collect evidence and how things are tested. We need to re-examine the way that we present these findings and it, it just, the whole system needs a reevaluation. Yeah. yeah, I agree. <clears throat> well... Do you, yeah, do you have any um, closing remarks, Alina? What are your closing arguments? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I'm just, my, the thing with the whole, with forensics is um, they just, they really do need to reevaluate, reevaluate it, like you were saying. There needs to be 
you know, more strict standards. There needs to be some type of standardization in these various different tests. Certain things, maybe they need to be thrown out, like um, hair comparison. Um, they need to not only do that kind of stuff, but we need to have proper schooling for these techs. We need to have, um, you know, proficiency testing. So we know that these techs, when they when they put out these results, that they know that they are doing these results correctly. Um, better training. Um, I feel like maybe the training is a problem because they are so understaffed, so you don't have enough people possibly to train. So these people are getting poor training, quick training, and not, you know, thorough enough for something that's going to determine somebody's life or death. Yeah. They're, you know, that, that, that um, teenager that I was talking about before, Josiah Sutton, after he was exonerated and he got out of jail, he had multiple problems holding jobs, having issues. He, I think he then got arrested again for possible assault. This destroys a person's life and their opportunities when they are jailed and they are not, you know, they, they go from being an exemplary student or a great football player to, you know, maybe living a life of crime and not having any success in their life. It, it, it essentially kind of kills them in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So I, I absolutely, I absolutely feel like they need to work on the standards. This needs to be something that is looked at intensely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming yes. on and talking with us. It was really nice to have somebody who actually knows what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Oh, all right, you guys. So um, that was. Forensic Junk Science. Woo woo. We did it. We sort did of. it, guys. We <laughs> made Successful. it. We had a guest on. <laughs> we did it. Didn't it. completely go sideways like I thought it was going to. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so we don't have too, too much at the end of the show. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I've got, I do have a couple of suggestions, and they are on par with what we've been talking about today. Mm-hmm. If you want to learn more about any... Um, wrongful convictions or anything like that, definitely check out, I know I reference it a lot, <laughs> wrongful convictions with Jason Flom. Um, he brings on people who were exonerated of their crimes and they are able to tell their stories. He also does a lot of work with the Innocence Project. So um, it's it's really, really great. The other one I want to mention is Actual Innocence with uh, or by Brooke Giddings, which I'm not sure if I've talked about on here or not. I think I might have I mentioned. I don't think but, so. Um, it's, it is also another one where she has... Uh, exonerees on her show that they just it's it's really cool because both of these are kind of just a platform for these people to come and tell their stories and it does definitely make you realize that this could happen to anybody i mean you could wake up and go to work and the next day there's police at your door trying to accuse you of a crime that you didn't commit so Mm -hmm. definitely give those a lesson yeah wear gloves everywhere you go (laughs) just be in a bubble everywhere Yeah. Did you have um, any shout-outs this I do week? have a shout-out. I just, again, wanted to thank uh, Alina, yeah. my sister. Thank you so much. It was really cool having somebody I on. Was like, I like, we, we just should said try to but... have a guest. And I was like, oh, you know, my yeah. sister's like a nerd, and she, she can help us with DNA, because yeah, that's right. what she does yeah. all the time. And this, I know this format was a little bit different than what we normally do. Mm-hmm. Let us know what you think. Yeah. Leave us a comment on iTunes, shoot us an email, anything. We'd love yeah. to hear what you think of it. I mean, it, definitely hit us up like on this. Twitter, BT yeah. uh, Crimecast, our Gmail account. 
um, Facebook. Let us know. Yeah. Write us a review, too. We I don't have a review this week to read. Yeah, what the hell, guys? I mean, come, come on. on, guys. Even it's just like, it's good. <laughs> it's good. Uh, Good. I'll read it on. I'll read it on the air. Come on. Don't you want me to like shout you out? Yeah, right. <laughs> don't you want to feel special for a hot minute on the internet? I mean, maybe. maybe um, but I did want to shout out our our Twitter is always very active, yes. and I'm very very appreciative that the people on Twitter are so nice and generous, and they share us with their friends. Um, in particular, uh, Noel, whose Twitter handle is Y F A O F M. She has been tweeting, like, every time she's listening to our podcast, she has, like, a list. She's like, this is what's in my queue today. I'm like, Aww. we have been on it almost every single week. She's so, going to be running out of episodes. I know. <laughs> <laughs> she's going to be like, just kidding, not on this week. But she's yeah. been so nice and including us, and I just wanted to shout her out and say thank you so much for Thanks listening. So Thanks for sharing it. Every time you do, I we really appreciate yeah, it. Real. I mean, the more people you tell, the better. Yeah. And we we want to have conversations with our followers. So Absolutely, please send yeah. us send us a tweet, a, any sort of message, Facebook, Gmail, whatever. Yeah. We love to talk to you. And I know I've said this a million times, but we are independently produced. We don't do any advertising or anything. So the only way other people are going to know to listen to us is if you tell them. Right, and we've slowly started to build our Patreon, so I want to thank everyone who's been donating to our Patreon. We really, really yeah. appreciate it. It helps us with our research. It helps us with the programs that we have to use um, to get this podcast to you. Um, I did have people kind of ask us, well, I don't know Patreon, and I don't yeah. really feel comfortable. You can do one-time donation on PayPal. Yeah, so uh, you can send us a one-time donation on PayPal. Which I'm going to get up on the website to make it easier to find. Yeah. That's on me. <laughs> but I'm you can sorry. send it, I mean, just... Put it in our, our yeah. Gmail, yep. and it will send it to us if you just want to send us a few dollars because um, you don't want to commit to a Patreon. That's fine. Yeah. Um, every little bit helps, and it helps us get, you know, the content that we want to give you. Um, so, yeah. We want to give it to you so bad. We want to give you that content. Give you that content. That's <laughs> Sorry, slow. this just got real weird. Uh, we're talking had about to take it there. DNA. Yeah. And there you giving go. you that content. <laughs> giving you the content. On that note. Uh, yes. That's been uh, our show. This is the Bad Taste Crime Cast. I'm Vicky. I'm Janelle. <laughs> and we will see you guys in two weeks. Yay. Adios. Bye, guys. Bye. <laughs> Strangler has murdered ten young women and left their bodies on the hillsides along the highway.